One of the things that we've been discussing has been loving as the children of God. And so, how many of us have really pondered the question, why do we love? Or even, where does love originate and what is the purpose of love? Uh, Is love an emotion? Is it an action? And what's it directed towards? And so if love is spoken about a lot within our own culture, I think those questions still remain, right? That what does love really mean when our culture speaks of loving people well? What does our culture mean by love? And what does the church mean by love? And the truth is, is that confusion in the church about love exists as well. This morning, as we dive back into God's Word, what we're going to see is that loving one another is actually about God's glory and the powerful work of the cross. So let's go ahead and stand together. We're going to be reading from John chapter 13. June, I'm going to have you bring me down just a little bit more in the house if you could. And this is what it says. It says, when he'd gone out, Jesus said, now this is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while while I'm with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. You may be seated. At the heart of the passage is a simple truth. And that simple truth is that loving one another in Christ's church glorifies God. Loving one another in Christ's church glorifies God. In in verse 31, it begins, when he'd gone out, he went out and he says this, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now, who is he talking about when he'd gone out? Well, Jesus has just washed the feet of his disciples. It's prior to Passover, He's washed the feet of his disciples, and then after washing the feet of his disciples, he sits down and they have a meal, the Last Supper together. And it's during this meal that he tells the disciples that one of them will betray him. And when asked about which disciple, he responds this way in verse 26. He says, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Icariot. Verse 30 continues, So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So Jesus has 
gone to the disciples. He's washed their feet. It is prior to him going to the work of the cross. It's prior to his, his death. They, they meet in the upper room for this last supper, supper. And he tells them that one of you is going to betray me. And he identifies that one as Judas. And so Judas leaves from amongst his presence. And so as soon as Judas leaves, Jesus tells the remaining disciples this in verse 31. He says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Now what's unique about that is you hear that word glorify or glorified five times right away. And it's not just a, a, an attempt to, to jump hoops, to, to get twisted up in the language. But Jesus is specifically referring to His appending work on the cross. But He's also referencing His resurrection and His ascension into the presence of God. You see, in John 17, 3-5, He makes it clear when He says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ who you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus glorifies God by going to the cross. He himself is glorified by going to the cross. He lays down his life it reveals the glory of Christ humbling himself on the cross, but then it also exalts the Father. It glorifies God. How? The cross is a perfect representation of the character of God. It demonstrates his mercy, it demonstrates his righteousness, it demonstrates his justice, the need to actually deal with sin. It shows His holiness. It also shows His goodness. It shows His love that while we were undeserving of new life in Christ, He grants it. It shows His omnipotence, His power over all things through the death and then the resurrection, defeating the power of death. And it says, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. Meaning that in the resurrection, the power of God is seen, not just in Jesus, but in God himself. What Jesus is saying is the work of the cross is near. And what you're about to see is me. A true representation of who I am as God. And then he says, I will glorify him at once. Meaning that Jesus is then raised from the dead and he's seated at the right hand of God when he returns to heaven. Meaning that the resurrection is approval, does demonstrate, does show that God received Jesus' sacrifice as worthy, as complete, as finished. It is enough. 
So God's sacrifice on the cross through Jesus is enough. Stephen Cole points this out. He says, to glorify God is to magnify or display his perfect attributes. At the cross, God's love, righteousness, justice, mercy, and grace were magnified as no other occasion in history. At the cross, God's justice was upheld as his sinless son bore the awful penalty that his justice demanded for all sinners. But his love and grace shine forth as he offers eternal life to all who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus alone. Jesus is saying, the time has come for me to be glorified, and now I am glorified because it has been set in motion. Judas goes out to betray Jesus. Now understanding what this means for the disciples, he says this in verse 33, little children. And then he says, yet a little while I am with you. Meaning, I'm not going to be with you very long. Now this word, little children, was not, or phrase, was not a demeaning situation. It wasn't calling them a bunch of immature followers. If we were to use that term, if I were to look at Caleb and look at him and say, hey, little child, he'd be like, I'm going to punch you in the face. (laughs) Or at least be like, really? Seriously, right? It would draw within us this kind of demeaning tone. Jesus isn't referring this in a demeaning way. It actually is as a loving father to a child. It's one of compassion, of understanding. It's it's one of coming alongside and saying, I understand, I get it. Like, I want you to know that I'm right here with you. It, It speaks of their vulnerability. It speaks of their need for dependence upon Him. And He says to them, little children, I'm only going to be with you a little while. Now think about this for a minute. I think about this as my kids have gotten older. Jesus comes with compassion, right? And says, little children, I'm only going to be with you for a while. I look at my kids, I'm like, you can't live here all your life. (laughs) Right? There's not a lot of compassion in it. It's just, you better get on your, what you're doing and start moving in that direction because you can't be here. I'm not paying for you to live here all your life. Right? Not a lot of compassion. Jesus' take on it's totally different. Jesus' take is little children. Because you are vulnerable, I'm going to deal with you in such a way. This is not intended to be a slap at the disciples, but rather it is intended to show his compassion for his disciples. He's saying to them, I know, listen, I'm only here a little while, and I want you to be prepared for what is to come. You see, what he says next is huge. He says there, where am I going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Now what's interesting is we've heard this all throughout Scripture. In Exodus, we're told to love our neighbors. We're told throughout the New Testament to love our neighbors. And he calls it a new commandment. 
And it is, actually. Because he says love one another. But what he's pointing out here is that when Jesus is gone, the disciples then have no way of knowing how do I glorify God? How do I demonstrate the worship of God? And what Jesus is pointing out is he's saying, listen, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. The point here is is that God is not only glorified through Christ's obedience in loving the world, but he's glorified through his children's obedience in loving one another. Another way to put it is that God is glorified through Christ's work on the cross and the love of his church for one another. That's how his attributes are seen. That's how God is revealed and identified. So what does love then look like that glorifies God? Well, verse 34 says, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So a love that glorifies God first models Christ's love to other believers. It models Christ's love to other believers. Now, this is not saying that we're to love the world less. It's not what's getting it. What it is saying is that we are to love the church more. That's nuanced a little bit, but it's actually not. Let me give you a picture of that. Tim loves Caitlin and Aubrey. He also may love Tyler. But the truth is, is that because they are his children, and there is relationship connected as family, he loves Aubrey and Caitlin more. It's not that his love is less for others, but it is more for his own children. The same is true in Christ's kingdom, in Christ's house, in Christ's family. He says, listen, love one another just as I have loved you. It begins with a love towards other believers. Our love for one another is worked out in the context of his church. Ephesians 1, 5-2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A fragrant offering. When the church of Christ loves one another as Christ loved us, he calls it a fragrant offering. It's something that is pleasing to God's heart. You see, this love is a love that demonstrates God's grace. It demonstrates His mercy. It's committed to correction. It bears up with one another. It lays down its life for one another. You see, when we look at Christ's life and His love towards mankind, that's what He's calling us to do towards one another is to love in the same way. In fact, what we see is that love is the mark of a growing follower of Christ. One pastor put it this way, 
Love means being committed to the other person's highest good. The highest good for all people is that they would become more like Jesus Christ by growing in holiness and living to glorify Him. That commitment to the other person's highest good is the glue that holds together, for example, marriages. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, a husband's love for his wife should aim at sanctifying her so that she would be holy and blameless. That same commitment should cause church members to work through conflicts and to seek to persevere and preserve the unity of the church in the bond of peace. We're to be believers who are committed to God's love. It means that when I see a need in another follower of Christ and I have the means to meet that need, I need to meet that need. It means that I display grace towards one another. It means that I display mercy towards one another. It means that I'm not just willing to let them die in sin, but I'm willing to speak to it and speak to it in love. I'm willing to provide correction where correction is needed. You see, God's love is to be modeled to other believers. And love that glorifies God is a love that models Christ's love to one another. I think sometimes within our own culture, we're so confused about what love is that we bring that understanding within the church And we talk about a lot of things. We talk about righteousness and holiness and being submitted to God. But we don't spend a lot of time talking about what it really means to love God and what it really means to walk in love with one another. And so I want to encourage you that as we go through this series this summer on loving God as His children, that we would continue to ask God to give us greater hearts for loving one another. The second thing that love that glorifies God does is that it testifies to the work of Christ in his followers. It testifies to the work of Christ in his followers. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, we see here it says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Matthew Henry put it this way. He said, Brotherly love is the badge of Christ's disciples. By this he knows them. By this they may know themselves. And by this others may know them. The distinguishing character of his disciples, this would have been for them noted for, as that within there excelled all others, their loving one another. This was what their master was famous for. All that ever heard of him have heard of his love his great love, and therefore if you see any people more affectionate one to another than what is common, say certainly these are the followers of Christ. It is our love for one another that actually bears testimony to who Jesus is. It bears testimony for what God has called us to, but it's what God has called us to that actually proclaims who he is. Now think about this. Jesus was going away for a while. In those days, disciples stayed with their rabbis, their teachers, their followers. They were identified by being in his presence. Jesus knew that when he left, there would be this confusion, this 
void, that their temptation would be to wane in loving that who was not present in front of them. And so Jesus' instruction was to love one another well, to love one another as Christ has loved us. The point of that is this, that God has called us to love one another so that the world might know that we are his disciples. But we can be assured that when we love one another as Christ has loved us, that his name is being glorified, that he is being glorified, that he is being exalted. It's easy sometimes to think that if we're just gifted, if we just serve God, that that's what God is desiring. But what God is actually desiring is for us to be growing in love. We can't be growing in Christ apart from growing in love for others. That's what he's pointing out. In fact, Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. But where does it begin? It begins with love. The Spirit at work in your life, the evidence of that is a love for one another and a love for others. Because of the way that we operate in our culture, we can believe that because of our own gifting and our own skill set that we are doing something great for God when God is saying it is nothing apart from love. In a success-driven culture, in a culture that measures success based upon talent, God's not looking at talent. God's looking at your growing in love as you're submitting to Him. One pastor pointed out that sadly the church is often known for its fighting and divisions over petty issues than it is for love. Back in the 1970s, some church growth gurus observed that Christians like to go to church with others who are just like they are. Whites like to be with whites. Blacks like to be with blacks. Rich college graduates like to be with other rich college graduates. Rednecks don't like going to church with long-haired liberals who favor gun control. So these church growth gurus gave us the homogenous unit principle. If you want your church to grow, you've got to target the niche that you're trying to reach and market your church to those folks. The problem with it is, is it goes directly against Scripture. See, Galatians 3.28 says this, and I want us to hear this because when we understand this, that God did not intend for His church to be one generational or single dynamic. He says this, He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The unity that we have inside of the body of Christ is to be a representation to the world of the unity that we have of a God who died for all who granted life to all, who did not see through the lens of partiality. That unity stands out. Think about that today. As Christians, we talk about our culture and how divided the culture is. 
My question is, is the church unified? Do we walk without a sense of partiality towards one another? Do we love those who are in our presence that seem difficult? Ask yourself this question. Who are you loving in Christ's church that's hard for you to love? Who are you loving outside of Christ's church that's hard for you to love? God never intended for there to be division amongst people within his body because it was Christ who unified. That we were one family and to a world that is divided. We can look out today and say, oh, the world is more divided than it's ever been. I don't think so. I think it's more visible. It's in our face. It's clear and truthfully because we're such an independent society and culture. We tend to go about our business until it affects us. And when it affects us is when things happen on the freeway or to businesses. That's when it affects us. And that's when we start caring. But the truth is, is it's always existed. Go to Senegal. Go to Germany in 1940. Go to Bosnia. Go to Croatia. Go to Russia. The genocides that have taken place over people groups have existed and truth be told, at a distance it didn't affect us all that much. It has always existed. Women didn't have rights to vote until slaves had three-fifths of a person's right to vote. History has shown that there has been partiality throughout our culture. And Christ was saying that his church is to be different. That everyone comes with value. Everyone is to be treated and loved as Christ loved each of us. Galatians 3.28 makes it clear that the church is to be a bastion of glory. Imagine what would happen when the world sees the unity of Christ. I remember about two years ago as the Hansels were moving across town in Roanoke Park and as we moved their places, their neighbors came out and said, where did all these people come from? And where do you get them? And Adam shared, it's our church. It's awkward for the world to see people walking in unity with one another and loving one another and serving one another. And it is a radical, a radical confrontation to the culture. As the body of Christ, when we love one another, we testify to the glory of who Christ is. The third way that, the third aspect of a love that glorifies God, the first being that we model Christ to the followers of Christ, the second being that there's a witness that comes as we love one another, and then third is the fact that it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Notice what happens in verse 36. It says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. 
Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now this is one of the few times that we see Jesus actually ask a question that I think is more sarcastic in tone. Will you? I want us to stop and think about Peter just for a moment. Peter has stepped out onto the Sea of Galilee and walked with Jesus on water. As he's walking on the water, he takes his eyes off of Christ and begins to sink. And he is rebuked when he gets back in the boat and he's told, you of little faith by Jesus. Even though the others never even stepped out of the boat. But it's Peter who's rebuked for having a lack of faith. In this particular case, Jesus has said, where I'm going, you cannot come. And then he, Peter asks the question again, where are you going? And Jesus says again, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter's heard now twice, you cannot follow me. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Now it's interesting that Peter is the only one that trails at a distance when Jesus is captured and he goes and is persecuted. And Peter stands back and we know that when Peter gets to the trial, he stands and he watches and he observes and he denies Christ three times. And I think sometimes we go, well at least Peter went. problem with it is is Christ had told him he couldn't come. Christ had already told him, you can't come. And Peter was saying, I still want to come. And Christ is saying, you can't come. Where I'm going, you can't go. You can't follow. And what happens in this moment is that although Peter is the first to step out of the boat, often Peter trusts in his own self-sufficiency rather than in Christ. And just because we step out doesn't mean that we're walking in obedience. We can have lots of faith, but if we're stepping out into the wrong things, we're walking in disobedience. Peter steps out in this moment and says to Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you. And you can imagine what's going through Jesus' mind. Jesus is saying, I've already told you twice you can't follow me right now. And you're saying you're going to lay down your life? Will you lay down your life for me? You see, Jesus is, is, is flipping there. He's saying, listen, understand that what you think is going to happen is not what's happening. I've given you an instruction and yet you continue to refuse it. I wonder how many of us at times are like that in our own lives. Where God's given us an instruction and yet we refuse it. And, and we love the idea of serving God or being faithful for God, but we're stepping into the wrong things. And part of what Jesus is saying here is, part of the way that you love me is by obeying me. 
you demonstrate your love for me by, by walking in obedience with me. You see, Peter underestimated his own willpower. He underestimated his own ability. And what it shows us is the need for the Spirit to love as Christ loved. The only way to lay down our life for others is by allowing the Spirit of God to do it for us. That's why it's important that when we pray that God would give me a loving heart towards somebody, that we're praying that the Spirit of God does that. In marriages, we need to be asking not for our own strength to love our spouse, but we need to be asking for the Spirit's strength to love our spouse. We need to ask for the Spirit's strength to love our children, even when we're frustrated. We need to ask for the Spirit's strength to love those that are sitting next to us this morning and across the rows and across the aisles. Because we don't know what God is going to place before us. Do our hearts break when people are trapped in sin? Or do we find ourselves going, well, it serves them right. That's the, the fruit of their labors and choices. Do we rejoice when other people rejoice? Do we celebrate in the blessing in people's lives? We need to love as Christ loves us, and the only way to do that is through Christ through his spirit. We cannot love as Christ loved us if we do it or try to do it apart from his spirit. It can't happen. Now what's unique here is that Jesus says to him, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will come afterwards. Now there's two things at work here. We know from John 14 that Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So we know that Christ is promising that he will come back, that he will return for his people. But more than this is the idea of Peter following in the laying down of his life for Christ. Just as Christ laid down his life for us, he too will lay down his life for Christ. You see, John 21, verses 18 through 19, after Jesus goes and denies him three times, Jesus begins the process of restoring Peter. And he says this. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were used to dress yourself, when you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he, Peter, was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. You see, it was through the cross that then Peter was strengthened through the power of the Spirit. And this man who once trusted in his own strength, this man who chased after Jesus even against his instruction, is the same man who then died for the sake of Christ, but chose not to die in the honorable way that Christ, upon a cross, 
not wanting to be confused for Christ, he died upside down on a cross. That he was carried to a place that he did not want to go, but he did so for the sake of Christ. See, that's the essence of loving one another. That there are times and seasons that we don't want to do something, and yet for the sake of one another, we do so because Christ has called us to love one another. The only way to do that is in the empowerment of the Spirit. The change that occurs in Peter's life is a direct result of the Holy Spirit at work within him. Ephesians 3, 16-20 tells us this. And it speaks of the work of the Spirit. And it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God. It's a Spirit-empowered love in our life. The Spirit grants us understanding. The Spirit grants us conviction. The Spirit grants us strength. And then it goes on and it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power of work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Sometimes we ask God to bring a powerful movement among his people. What are we really asking for? We want the Spirit to show up but we're never specific about it. You see, what is going to demonstrate the power of the Spirit within His church is actually our love for one another. If we want to see a demonstration of the powerful work of God within our church, it is when we love one another well in His strength. That's a powerful work that the world cannot deny. And so, The glory of love is the fact that when we love one another as Christ loved us, God is glorified. And as a church, our focus has to be about His glory and not man's. And so may that be our prayer this morning as Redemption Hill. May we be a church committed to loving one another, His church, in accordance to the way that Christ has loved us, so that he might be glorified. Knowing that love is a mark of the believer. Not not, not spiritual gifts, but love. Growing in love for one another is a mark of God's growth in our own life. And that love is defined by Christ's love towards us, not the world. And that that love is a witness to the world And that that love needs to be empowered by the Spirit. Because apart from the Spirit, it is just human love which will never bring about the glory of God.
Let's pray. Father, thank you that you remind us what love is. Thank you for helping us see that your love for us is the way that we're to love one another. And may we be reminded, Lord, that your glory is at stake, that it is your glory that is seen. Lord, you won't lose your glory. You're never going to be without it. But God, your church is called to glorify your name, to glorify you. And so, Father, may we do that well. May we bring the hope of the gospel, the truth of the gospel to your world because of our love for one another. And may the the world see the reality and truth of your love in your church. Father, may we be known not simply for what we stand for, but God, may we be known for our love and the care and compassion and the truth that we carry towards one another. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.